This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Tethered Nation, you guys have heard me talk about the saddle setup, tethered saddle setup, the Predator platform for quite some time. This is the second full season that I've used it. Um, I've killed out of it twice now. Uh, and really what it has helped me do, I figured instead of, you know, I've given you guys specs, the weight and how light it is, bulky free that it is and so on and so forth. But I thought today I would give you a little bit of a testimonial, um, as you know, I will credit, you know, and, and there's been a lot of people who've had a lot of influence on how I've started to hunt and how I've kind of evolved as a hunter, but I would say there's been no piece of equipment that's been more instrumental in me making that evolution than tethered's saddle setups. Um, the reason I say that is, is that, you know, I'm a guy that works like a normal job, like everybody else out there. And so when I go on hunting trips or I'm hunting, you know, I have a limited time to get, to get stuff done. Um, you know, so I typically want to hunt more aggressively and that's something I've challenged myself with the past, you know, year and a half was to just, you know, to be more aggressive and don't lay back. Um, and the saddle setup has really helped me do that because I've spent much more time with boots on the ground scouting than I ever have in years, years past. And that's really because, I'm not carrying a bunch of bulky stuff into the, into the timber with me. And so I don't mind, it's not a hindrance to carry my saddle setup. And that way, when I find fresh sun, I can get into the tree and I don't have to leave and come back and drop scent. You know, if once I see it, I'm in the tree hunting it, I'm not finding it, setting up a stand, taking the time to do that, then leaving and coming back and hunting it the next day. I'm literally getting into the tree and hunting it at that moment. And I can't say that if I was using any other setup other than a saddle setup, specifically tethered gear, that I would be making the same strides I'm making now and becoming a more aggressive and a more mobile hunter. So if this is something that you're interested in, if you want to challenge yourself to be more mobile, more aggressive, and go find deer instead of letting the deer find you, then I would suggest that you go to tetherednation.com and check out all their saddle gear. I guarantee you if you get into it, you won't be disappointed, uh, and you'll probably become an addict like me. Skull Brew Coffee Company. Everyone loves coffee, and with that, Skull Brew is celebrating Black Friday and Cyber Monday to help you fuel your holiday season. Now through December 6th, you can buy one bag of any Skull Brew coffee and get the second bag for 25% off. Coffee makes a killer Christmas gift and one-ups your relatives because this gift that you're giving is donating to conservation or 
You can just drink the coffee yourself and re-gift those tidy whities your grandma gave you last year. We won't tell. Visit SkullBrewCoffee.com and use the promo code HOLIDAY19 at checkout and fuel your holiday with Skull Brew Coffee and know that you're supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 154. Today, I'm cranking up another DIY report miniseries, this time with the godfather of saddle hunting, John Eberhardt. So stay tuned. What is going on, everybody? Happy Wednesday to you. I hope you're all doing well and feeling good out there. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. I know Thanksgiving's tomorrow. Uh, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, it'll be tomorrow. But if you're listening to it any other time, it might have been might have been passed already. But regardless, uh, happy Thanksgiving to you. I hope everyone is going to have a little bit of a uh, little bit of food, whatever food it is that they like. I know I know John uh, Mulligan, Mister Utah, doesn't like turkey. He's a ham guy, so hopefully he gets some. Hopefully he gets some ham. Um, but I have a cool show for you today. Um, pretty excited about the, this show. I guess I should back up for a second and just, uh, mention what I've been up to since I got back. I've been up to absolutely nothing and I'm okay with it. Um, if, if you followed along with any of the, the Iowa rut log podcast or the, or the wrap up episode that I did, uh, it was a, it was a pretty rough, uh, 15 days in, in Iowa that ended, that ended well, um, needed a little bit of a reprieve when I, when I got back, had plenty of stuff to catch up on at work. So that's basically what I spent this past week doing was, uh, just grinding at work, trying to get back up to speed on everything. Um, and then of course have the holiday season coming up here, had my dad in town and my, and my stepmom in town visiting this past weekend, had a, had a coffee event with the, uh, with the coffee company, with the skull brew, uh, coffee company. We had a, uh, had a, uh, I guess it was like a holiday craft fair that we were doing this past weekend with my buddy Wilson. Actually, my buddy Wilson was there too. Um, so, you know, came back, no rest for the, no rest for the wicked was not necessarily busy hunting, but busy with all the other things that I kind of let slide, uh, while I was out chasing, out chasing whitetails. But with that, you know, the holiday season is here. Thanksgiving will be here on Thursday. And then the holiday weekend, you know, this year is a little bit different than years past where we have at least for Pennsylvania, we have the, the gun season coming in on Saturday after Thanksgiving versus historically it's been the Monday after Thanksgiving. So that's kind of a big change for PA. Um, but it's actually works in my favor. You know, I'm one of those people who didn't mind the mind it being on Saturday. Cause a lot of times, you know, I don't hunt rifle necessarily. I was going to try to get my daughter out. Um, but you know, she's at, at that age where I don't know that she's uh, that hunting's necessarily high on her priority list. Um, she enjoys uh, shooting. She enjoys shooting her bow. Um, but she does not enjoy being cold or waking up early. So her desire to sleep and be warm has trumped her desire to go sit into a, in a blind with her dad. Um, but I'm not going to, not going to pressure her into, into doing that. I want her to enjoy it. And, uh, you know, she said she was interested in maybe going and trying to shoot some geese, um, this year, potentially. I don't know that she's able to, though. I don't think I can take her for that till next year, if I'm not mistaken. So she might have to wait a year, uh, a year on that. But regardless, I'm going to, you know, I haven't hunted gun season in, in several years, at least the opener. I've gone out during the course of gun season with my bow, uh, but I'm actually going to hunt this opener and I'm going to hunt it with a bow um, this year. The reason being is, uh, well, I just want to get an extra day in the, in the woods and it's on Saturday, so I don't have to take a day off. So that's, so that's good. Um, and I'll be back home with family and so forth. And my dad will actually be up and he and I have not hunted together. And I think I chronicled this last year. We, we had a hunt planned together last year during pre-rut on his property, you know, it's like 60 acres back home that I do a little bit of food plot work on and stuff like that. 
Um, I think I hunted it three days last year. I have yet to hunt it this year at all. Um, been all, all public land so far this year. Um, but he's actually going to be headed back there and going to be hunting the opener of rifle Saturday. And I think he's also going to stick around and hunt Monday too. Um, and so just coincidentally, we'll both be there. And I was planning to head to that property since my daughter wasn't going to hunt, um, because there's nobody on that piece, you know, I I had assumed. And so I was going to, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a sanctuary for deer in the area because no one gun hunts that, that spot really. Um, and so I figured I'd go back and hunt that and talking to my dad this weekend. I know he's going to be back there hunting. So we're actually going to get to hunt together. And I think it's the first time that we'll hunt together since like 2002 or something like that. Um, so it's been a long time coming. So I'm going to hunt with the old man, uh, which is cool. I think he's going to use his gun. I think he's going to use his rifle. Um, but I'm going to take, uh, take my bow a walk and, uh, I've not been back to the property since June, I think June, I'm pretty sure it was June. Um, maybe it was July. Uh, but pretty sure it was June and I haven't checked trail cameras or anything. There was one good deer that I had during the summer that was back there. Um, there's always seems to be one homebody deer, a uh, homebody buck on that property every year that, that is a, is around. That's a good deer. And so I'm hoping that's the case, uh, when I had, uh, when I head back there this, uh, this coming weekend, but, uh, I don't really have any expectations. You know, I don't really know, you know, what my plan is going to be. I shouldn't say that. I kind of know where I'm going to set up. I need to check the wind. Um, cause I feel like once guns start cracking, I kind of know where they're going to kind of move to. And I think my goal really is, um, to try to slip in, in the morning. And I think I can maybe catch one cruising, coming back to coming back to bed. Um, that's kind of what my, what my hope is Add that. And there's a lot of doe bedding in this general area as well. And so, you know, before the chaos starts of, of the guns cracking and so forth, I might be able to catch one, maybe acting somewhat normal, um, you know, for this time of year, which is maybe, you know, starting to look around for, uh, another doe coming out of lockdown and so forth. I know John and I talked about that, about this time of year around Thanksgiving is oftentimes, you know, can be good, uh, for finding a big deer, um, looking for that, you know, last doe that's going to come in at the beginning of December ish, um, you know, to, to get that final dough bread. Um, and so I'll be kind of hoping to get a little bit of that magic, I think, uh, this coming Saturday, but that's really my whitetail update after that. Um, you know, I'll come back here, uh, to the Philadelphia area and, uh, I'll get back, I'll get back on it and, uh, you know, start really kind of gearing up for, for, for late season. You know, I'll hunt during gun season with a bow, around here on some small parcels where there's not, you know, where gun hunting is not, uh, you're not capable, not able to hunt with the gun just because of the size of the piece and how close homes are and stuff like that. So that's usually a lot of times during gun season where I'll focus my attention is on those pieces. And then once gun season kind of goes to, you know, comes to a close, then I'll kind of head back out into like the larger, larger pieces of timber. But I think this post or this late season, I, you know, I, I would love to fill my buck tag, but I think there's a couple of larger parcels of public land that I want to really get boots on the ground. Um, and I think what I might end up doing is hitting some of those and scouting slash hunt, hunting those here all late season in part. Cause I want to, I'd like to kill a, like to kill a decent deer. Uh, but the other part is that I'm kind of almost starting like my postseason scouting. I don't want you to think I'm throwing in the towel on this year necessarily, Um, but you know, there's a couple larger chunks of public that I want to try to spend some time on because I'm just kind of the bigger woods kind of setting. I just, I'm learning fits me, fits me better because I can, I can cover ground and I prefer to kind of do that. And that's another thing I think the Iowa trip taught me, um, was I do prefer the larger pieces, um, 
because I can find I can go find deer and not necessarily have to wait for deer to come to me. Um, and again, like I think I mentioned this in the upfront whenever I was doing the 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 some of the ads at the beginning, you know, talking about tethered and talking about the saddle setup. I mean, that's really what you know was the linchpin for me or the catalyst, if you will, for being able to really, really, truly hunt super mobile this year. Um, was being able to kind of hunt that light and um, going and finding deer versus finding a spot that I think deer should travel through and wait for them to come through. So it's like, you know, I took more of a, you know, what you might call a DeQuisto, you know, approach where it's like I was willing to bump deer um, to find them. And because I just wanted to know there were deer in a spot before I was going to set up, Um, which for some people might seem counterintuitive. And for a lot of years, it seemed very counterintuitive for me as well. Um, Now, granted, you can get away with a little bit more in Iowa because you're dealing with less pressure. But I think the principles are the same. Like, I, I think in some cases you can't be afraid to move some deer around um, as long as you're not, you know, as long as it's not day after day after day. I think you'll I think you'll be OK, um, especially if it's a piece that's brand new. Um, and that's what I was dealing with in, in Iowa. So I'm going to try to take some of those things that I learned out there and apply them best I can here. And I'm sure I'll talk about them throughout the course of the year about how it worked and how it didn't and how I might have to adjust it. And I think that's the beauty of hunting a bunch of different places um, as you get a bunch of different perspectives. So with that, we'll go ahead and get rolling on to uh, today's today's show. Got a really cool DIY report uh, mini series here. I love doing these. These are, these are probably some of my favorite pieces um, pieces of content to put out. Um, and I, I did a show a while ago with John Eberhart. And uh, John's just a really good dude, and he and I have stayed in in, in contact via text and email and, and so on and so forth. Um, and been wanting to have him back on, and so I was just trying to think through what you know, you know how I wanted to make a DIY report mini series with him because he's just a wealth of knowledge, and you can dive super deep into different topics with him. And the well never runs dry. And so uh, we finally found time to do it. You know, he was on the mend from a from a surgery that he had, so he had maybe a little bit of downtime, more so than he would have in other years during hunting season. So we took advantage of that, and we're doing a three part mini series with uh, Mr. Eberhart. And uh, I think there'll be I think there'll be areas that I think all of you will, will dig and can can take something from. Now I will apologize that you know my hope was to try to get this stuff out earlier in the season prior to you know season hitting. I know season is not coming to a close, but you know um, it would have been nice to have this at the beginning of the year. Schedules just weren't lining up for us to do that. But that doesn't mean we can't take some of these learnings into late season because I think some of this stuff still applies. Um, and then ultimately, you know, take some of this stuff and put it in your memory bank as you, as we always are kind of on the hunt or, you know, evolving and getting ready for the next season. It's a constant learning opportunity, you know, hunting at least is for me, it's, it's constant evolution. So I'm always looking for information. So with that, the three parts we're going to cover is uh, today's part is we're going to really focus on exit and entry routes. You know, John is really big on exit and entries so much so that he oftentimes, and you'll find when we talk through his entry and exit routes are usually different. And a lot of people will say that they're prioritizing entry and exit and they'll have a really good, it might work really well on entry. And then they deprioritize exit because they're not, they're leaving that spot and not hunting it. But John's really looking at it from the perspective of not wanting to damage it for future hunts at all. And so he oftentimes will have separate routes for his entry and his exit. Um, and we talk in depth about how he kind of plans that out and, and, and what he looks for. And, and is it seasonal? Is it time of day? You know, so all those factors, you know, he kind of come into play for him and we cover all those. The second part we'll do that we'll release, you know, we'll release these every other week with a longer version in our usual long form show in between 
Uh, the second um, part of this series we're going to do with John is hunting over active scrapes or hunting active scrapes. This is something that I used a lot this year, started using them last year, years prior. I always struggled hunting scrapes, and it wasn't until like I read his book and I had a chance to really talk to him on the show and talk to him outside the show, whether it was a po- you know whether it was email or text or phone call or whatever, um, where I started really learning how to hunt scrapes, specifically primary scrapes, and that was. I will say a hundred percent, you know, uh, one of the keys to the amount of activity I was seeing while I was, while I was in Iowa, it was kind of the perfect marriage of, of using a lot of what I've learned from John, but also a lot of what I've learned from Dan, Dan Enfault. So it was a combination of Eberhart and beast tactics was really what was kind of allowing me to, um, have the success I was having in, in Iowa. And then the last, uh, section we'll do with John. And this again is something, you know, I don't think it's specific to him. He's coined the phrase, but I know this is very beast oriented as well. Um, but it's freelance hunting. And that was pretty much, I would say like 85% of the hunting I was doing while I was in Iowa was freelance. I was walking into a place and figuring it out. Um, cause it was all kind of foreign to me. Um, and so freelance hunting is something that John, um, is really good at. Um, he has a kind of a method and, and a system as to how he kind of goes about it. And so in part three of the DIY report mini series, we cover that as well. So I think we have a lot of really cool content in this series. I think you guys will really dig it. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. And without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get cracking. And as always, Thank you all for listening. Oh, before I go, one other thing. John has a whitetail workshop that will be coming up in March and April. If you just Google John Eberhart, it will take you to the whitetail workshop page. Um, you can sign up. There's some, you know, it's a, it's a pay thing. So, you know, you sign up and you pay some money, you go and he does a ton of stuff in the workshops, you know, sharing a lot of his tactics, tips, stuff like that, actually taking you out to trees, showing you his saddle setups and how he preps trees. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. So be sure to check out that page. And now, without further ado, we're going to talk to John Eberhardt. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. You are listening to yet another edition of the DIY Report miniseries. And I had a, had this gentleman on, uh, well, it was probably almost like 70-some-odd episodes ago. I think it was episode 74. I have on no other than Mr. John Eberhardt. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, a little under the weather, but uh, doing well. Uh, how's, your, how's your shoulder doing? You, you feeling good? I actually raised my bow up to 43 pounds yesterday, so uh, I've been hunting the last two days. Nice, nice. Yeah, I know whenever we talked earlier in the, I think it was either early fall or late summer, where you were having uh, having shoulder surgery, did you have, uh, was there an injury there, or was it just a normal wear and tear? No, it was an injury. I ripped off, when I was prepping trees in the spring, I ripped my bicep off my shoulder. Oh, man. The tendon ripped off my shoulder, and I'm sure it was worn anyway. Um, so basically I went in and, uh, she cut, cut the tendon flush and she drilled a six millimeter hole underneath my armpit into my arm bone. And she put the tendon in the arm bone and then kind of sutured it where it'd stay in place. And I couldn't, I couldn't do anything with my left arm for three months. Right. And she also did the typical rotator cuff while she was in there. She did cleaned up the bone spurs and the arthritis. Right. Well, while you're in there, you might as well clean house, I guess. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Nice. Well, I'm glad you're on the mend. I'm glad you're able to get back out in the, uh, out into the timber and out into the, uh, the deer woods. Want to thank you for doing this DIY report miniseries. So this will be 
this will be a three-part series. Um, you know, as, as all the other for the listeners out there, as all the other DIY report mini series have been, and we're going to cover a host of topics. And if you want some, you know, a longer form podcast, as I mentioned, I'd done one with John. I think it was episode seventy-four, and I had a chance to read one of your books. You know, several. I guess it was probably almost two years ago, and that's kind of was you know the follow-up to that was the first podcast that we did. And then you and I have stayed in touch over the past, you know, like, you know, year and a half, two years and, and trading some emails and so forth. And uh, you actually shared some papers with me of some articles that you've written. And I had a chance to read through those on some some flights for work. And I just kind of started thinking, I was like, man, there's some really good nuggets in here that we could get into that are some some depth of content about certain um ways you approach approach certain aspects of, of your hunting and thought that would make a really good DIY report. And so what we're going to cover in these is exit and entry routes, which I think, you know, is ultimately, you know, imperative to good hunting opportunities, but I think are oftentimes thrown by the wayside to, to the degree, whether it's because they're tough, difficult, or whether, you know, whether it's just limited based on the, the, the property and, and how, what you have access to. The other thing we want to talk about, and this is something I've really picked up from you and have taken to heart is hunting active scrape areas and primary scrape areas. Um, it's actually had my best encounter this year based on that, uh, that kind of hunting methodology. And then the other thing I've actually been adopting a lot more this year. So as you can tell, John, you've had a big influence on how I approach things <laughs> is, uh, is, is freelance hunting. And the, those will be the three topics that we'll dive into. And the first one today will be exit and entry routes. So John, we'll start, we'll start there. And I guess the first question really is, you know, I know you do a lot of work as you'd mentioned, as you, you got your injury prepping trees, but you prep a lot of locations throughout the throughout the off season that we have a lot of places to to go beyond your freelance opportunities. So we've prepped locations and we're now looking for our best entry and exit routes. What type of questions are you asking yourself when you're looking to choose your your access for in and out? Well, the first question I ask myself is what is this location good for? Is it an early season location? Is it a rut phase location? Is it a morning location? Is it a midday location? Is it an evening location? Because all of those questions have to be answered before I decipher where I want my entry and my exit route. So let's say, for example, uh, let's say I'm at a white oak tree. And this white oak tree, I'm, I'm, I'm hunting public land and knock on doors for free permission only stuff. Mm-hmm. So... If I'm hunting a white oak tree or let's say an apple tree in Michigan, there's there's lots of lost apple trees here and there. Um, on an apple tree, it's going to be strictly an evening location because I would spook deer going in with my morning entry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and enter this location in the least invasive manner possible where I've got the least potential of spooking any deer with my entry. So let's say it's, 40 yards off or let's say it's 80 yards off of a crop field or a weed field or something like that, because it's going to be an evening location, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the middle of the field, whatever field it may be. And if it's corn, if it's standing corn, I would probably just walk three or four rows in the corn from mm-hmm. the edge of the cornfield. But uh, if it's, if it's a short crop, hay, soybeans, just weeds i'm going to walk through the middle of the field and then when i get equal you know equal to where i have to go into the timber to get to the white oak or whatever scrape area something that's a destination location for an evening hunt 
then I'm going to just make a beeline right in there. So I'm just going to be walking directly from the field because there's not going to be any deer out in that field during the daytime, obviously. Right. And it's an evening hunt. So I'm just going to walk directly from the tree edge to my location. Because a lot of times if you walk the edge of, edge of fields or edges of openings or edges of, of uh, cover to weeds or something like that, if you walk the edges, you'll spook deer that may be bedded for your 50 yards inside of the edge, inside mm-hmm. of the timber, especially when the foliage is down and the deer have a big visual from where they may be possibly bedded. I'm not typically worried about busting any mature bucks because they're going to be back in the junk farther. Right. But concerned about, you know, spooking does and fawns and maybe a subordinate buck that may be bedded out closer to the edges. So so uh, that's the least invasive way of entering that location. And then I try to make an exit route because it's going to be an evening location. I try to make an exit route that's not going to impede into the field. Okay. You know, if it's a crop field, there's going to be deer out there feeding. So I make an exit route that's going to be maybe 40 or 50 yards inside the timber and then I'll wait a half hour after dark before I exit to make sure all the deer have been have went by and they're out in the crops or whatever. Mm-hmm. They've passed through. And then I'll make my exit half hour after dark so I'm not spooking any as minimal deer as possible with my exit. Right. So uh, so that that's 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 an entry and exit route. You always want to make your entry route where you're spooking the least amount of deer. I don't worry about wind. Uh so I, I don't worry if the wind's blowing from where I'm walking the edge of a swamp or a marsh area, you know, the edge of a bedding area. I'm not worried about my wind blowing into the bedding area and spooking deer. So right. uh, I just want to put that out there right off the get-go. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So when you're walking through the middle of the field, I often use this same kind of philosophy whenever I'm entering, if I have that type of access for, for an evening. But is there any truth to like, – a lot of times I often – will avoid the edge, not just because of the bedding aspect of it, but knowing that deer are edge creatures. Like I'm trying to stay away from places where there's definitive edges where I think that they'll travel to just because I don't want them to pick up my ground scent. So if I'm walking through, if I have a field access to a degree, to your point, I will walk dead through the middle of it if it's a bean field or whatever, because I want, I, I only want my, my intersection of their possible travel route to happen pretty much right in front of where the tree is that I'm going to be walking into. So I have the least amount of, you know, I guess... Uh, ground scent, if if you will. Is there any? Do you follow kind of a similar practice as well? Uh, I don't worry about ground scent, okay? Because I, I'm a scent lock guy, so I don't worry about odor at all. Right. But I totally understand what you're saying. I don't like walking edges. My main reason for not walking edges is I, I'm concerned about spooking deer that are bedded just inside the edge. You okay. know, you know, there's ferns or some brush or something like that you know there's very likely going to be does bed within 50 to 100 yards right and because most of my hunting revolves around the rut phases when all the foliage is down they have a pretty big visual right so you know if you're walking the edge of something a deer bedded 50 to 100 yards probably inside the timber has a good chance of seeing you or possibly hearing you also right you know enough not to walk down the edges there's going to be noise right so when you're walking field you're not worried about noise you're just straight beeline from the edge of the field to your tree right and i killed a big buck in ohio and i think 2016 140 inches this guy invited me down there in december and uh him and his buddy had both missed this big 10 point and uh during gun season 
so he invited me down there because they were they were done, and <clears throat> I went down there two days after the gun season ended. And uh, what they were doing wrong is there was this weed field, <clears throat> and then there was some, and it was an old hay field, so there was hay in the weed field as well, mm-hmm. you know, from the year before. Yep. They let it overgrow, and they were walking the edge of the timber, and right along the edge of the timber, just to the to the right of the timber. It dropped down, and there was some really heavy pucker brush and briars and stuff, and there were deer bedding probably within 40 yards of that edge because it made a little drop down into some low, damp ground, and it was really brushy. And they were spooking deer, and they admitted it. You know, they would, right. they, because they were walking that edge, they'd spook does and fawns and stuff. And, well, when they run off, obviously, if there's a, a good buck there, he's, when he gets up and moves, he's not going to go the direction they ran off from. Right. Uh, so, so I ended up totally eliminating my morning hunts. So my, I was going to be there for five days, and so I was planning on ten hunts, five morning, five evening. I eliminated my morning hunts because there was no way I could access this location without spooking deer on a morning hunt because they were out in that field. Mm-hmm. So there was no way of doing that. So what I did is I went out through the middle of the field and made a beeline right to the tree that I prepped, and I ended up killing that deer uh because of that i just made a beeline and my tree was right on the edge of the field it was it was in a big pine right on the edge of the field the first night i passed up a a two and a half year old six point that i thought about shooting because it was really nasty weather and i wanted to go home (laughs) so so i entered through the field and passed on a big six point and then when i exited i exited Again, a half hour after dark, I exited through the bedding area. I mm-hmm. went down over the hill through the brush well after they had all passed by of the deer went out into the field. Right. And then I exited that way. So I wasn't spooking anything with my entries because there was nothing in the weed field during the evening when I was going in. And there was nothing in the bedding area half hour after dark after I, when I left. Right. Does your, I, does your exit... And entry always differ? Are they always different uh, access routes? Uh, typically, yes. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, uh, a lot of times, I'll like come through a crop field and wear waders and cross a river and go into some thick stuff, and and then when I exit, I don't go back out through the weed field. I go back. I go through the marsh or down the edge of the marsh a half hour 45 minutes after dark and go out around the edge and then across the river and, and go out on the edge of the wheat edge of the crop field as opposed to when i came in i came right through the middle of the crop field okay uh, but yeah they're they're typically different okay. i would say i'd say eight, 70 80 percent of the time my entry is different than my exit okay because i think that's one mistake folks probably make is having when they have good access say they have good access for entry they just assume that it's going to be good access for, for exit as well. Um, you know, and I think that that's one thing that I've started to learn is that my way in and out, <clears throat> depending on the each, you know, scenario may not be the same. I may have to exit the different way that I've entered and, and vice versa. And so, cause I've, I've kind of experienced what you've talked about avoiding, which is blowing up a hunt before it ever got started because my access was wrong. Um, or, educating deer on my way out that ended up ruining opportunities I may have had, you know, further into the season if I just would have exited correctly. So, yeah. um, yeah, learning curve, learning curve there for me, but I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, I think, I think people can kind of wrap their head around, you know, an, an uh, an access, you know, ex- exit and entry route strategy 
when they know the location that they're going to hunt, right? When they have something that's pre-prepped. But can you talk to me a little right. bit about how you um, how you approach access whenever you're when you're freelancing, you know, versus your prepared locations? Well, freelancing is totally different because what I consider a DIY freelance hunt is where you have never been in this spot or area ever before. So you're going in with your steps and your saddle and your bow, and you're going in to hunt. Mm-hmm. So pretty hard to make an entry in it, you know, to know what the entry and exit routes are going to be because you've never been there and you don't know where you're going to end up hunting. Right. Um, obviously, if you're hunting in an area that has openings you on an evening hunt, because typically most freelance hunts are evening hunts because you can't go in in the dark and find a new location, obviously. Right. So they're typically going to be evening hunts. So you try and stay in the most open areas you can or skirt the edges you know, skirt the edges of, of what you'd consider bedding areas, swamps, marshes, cattail marshes, you know, brush, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, you you definitely would want to skirt the edges, not just, obviously, you can't go in on a DIY hunt and just bust into a, a bedding area because you're going to spook the deer there. Right. Um, so you, you've got to, you got to do edges and go through openings and try and find places on edges or just inside the edge um, where you can hunt. You know, a lot of times you'll walk the edge on an evening hunt and you'll, you'll see, especially during the rut phase, it's because the foliage is down. Foliage being down makes a big, big difference from pre, you know, from early season. hundred percent. You'll see a lot of times, you know, your oaks hold your leaves longer. And a lot of times you'll see in the distance, maybe in some timber or something, you'll see, see some green or brown leaf trees and they're typically oaks because they hold their leaves longer than other ones. So, then you, if you're, you know, skirting an edge or something, or coming across a weed field, you see them in the distance. You know, that's a place I'd want to beeline to because it's, you know, that's going to be a destination location. And I'm a big destination hunter. Yeah. So, oh, well, actually, figuring out entry and exits, I, I guess that would be hard to do. But while you're going in, the only thing you really have to worry about on a DIY hunt is your entry. Right. An evening hunt. Your, your exit. Um, you know, after the fact, isn't going to be that critical unless it's a spot you're setting up and you plan on hunting again. And then when you get out of the tree in the evening after the hunt's over on a DIY, if you plan on going there again, um, you're very likely going to have to bust brush. Right. So going out in a manner where the deer are not at that time. Yeah, I mean, but in timber, that's deer tend to browse and just you know on public land and most of it's timber. And deer tend to browse, so typically you're going to spook something with your exit no matter what you do. Right, right. I think the one thing I've taken to doing, because I've adopted more freelance hunting this this past year, or this past or this season that we're currently in, um, is I spend, I think, a lot more time looking at my, my top-owned satellite imagery, trying to figure out, like, you know, higher ground typically. Because a lot of the places I'm hunting have a lot of swamp in them, and so I know if I have a little bit of elevation change, I'm probably going to be able to get out of the swamp in a little cleaner walking that way I'm not making as much noise versus staying in a lower area. And so I'm always trying to look to see like how quickly can I get to the high ground to, cause I'll usually look and like, there'll be a topography feature. And I'll be like, okay, this is an area I kind of want to be. I want to check this spot out. So I'll try to look at the topo and look at the satellite imagery and be like, all right, well, what looks thick? What doesn't look thick? Is there an elevation change I can use to get out of the lower line, swampy, marshy stuff to get into some cleaner walking? And then it, can I easily make it then to the place I'm trying to get to? 
that's the one thing that I've tried to do. I actually just did that last night and got hung up in some briars and stuff because I zigged when I should have zagged. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, it is what it is what it is. I saw deer, so it was it was it was all good. But I never heard of the oaks holding leaves longer. But that makes sense. That's a good strategy to use, especially when you're going into a place that you're not you're not familiar with. So I'm gonna file that in the old uh, in the old memory bank. That's uh, never heard of that before. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, usually oaks are taller and yeah, I mm. mean, I was hunting last evening and I, it was just so obvious, all the maples, the popples, the beech trees, everything else had dropped all the leaves and the oaks were the only thing that held leaves. Some were green, some were brown, but they still had lots and lots of leaves. And I'll, I'll look at my onyx too, but I don't really look for openings for the mm. most part. I'm looking, when I'm looking at my onyx, when I'm freelancing, I'm looking for trees. Because mm-hmm. usually onyx pictures are from some semblance of summer or spring. Um, so I'm looking, I'm not looking for dark green stuff because that's typically going to be pines. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking for, you know, like stands of trees. And then I'll hit the topple and see if it is a little bit higher ground. Mm-hmm. And typically that's going to, there's going to be some oaks in that, at least up in the northern states. I don't right. know about the southern states. Never hunted down there, but right. But I, I'm I'm always looking when I'm freelance hunting. I am 100 percent always looking for destination sites, preferably feeding, because right. all buck activity during a rut revolves around doe activities. So when you find places where does are feeding on a consistent basis, uh, that's where you're going to have your best opportunities for bucks, or else, you know, in a bedding area. But again pretty hard to freelance hunt in a bedding area without spooking everything out with your entry on an evening. <laughs> right, right. So that's, that's actually a really good segue because the next thing I wanted to ask you about is two things. So this will be a two-parter, is choosing the right tree, right? So you're freelancing and you're trying to find the right tree. Or we can even look at it from a perspective of, you know, maybe you know the property and, and you've prepped the tree. How are you choosing that tree? And then how are you selecting the specific tree that you that you, that you want to be in? You know, what are you looking at to you know, to achieve when you select a specific tree and, you know, what should it allow you to do? I love that question because that's <laughs> a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. And I've written articles on selecting the right tree and preparing the right tree. Right. Uh, not a lot comes into play on this a little bit um, because I'm not worried about getting winded or touching vegetation. So typically if I'm looking, if I've, if I've found a, a destination spot or let's say there's a, there's a tiny little opening and there's three or two or three runways converging there. And that's the best sign I've seen to this point, or I see a white Oak or whatever, a beech nut tree. Um, and that's going to be where I'm going to set up. I will make a circle. I'll, I'll take the runways or I'll make a circle around the little area and I'll look at all the trees while I'm making that circle. I'll also look at on public land. I will look at, how, how they're, you know, what type of shooting lanes there are. Cause, cause you can't cut shooting lanes on public land. Right. So I'll be looking at the trees 
and looking at the sign in the area and also looking at the trees in conjunction with what kind of shooting lane openings do I have, and that's how I will pick out the tree. And once I once I pick out the tree, uh, on, now this is on private ground, I'm you know freelance hunting on private ground, I will clean up a couple little shooting lanes first before I prep the tree. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pro- this is on private, and I did this in Iowa when I killed my biggest buck ever. Um, so I'll clean up a couple little shooting lanes. I won't clean them like I would if I'm going in postseason and prepping a location that I'm going to hunt in the future, you know, where I'm going to clean some wide shooting lanes. But uh, I'll clean the shooting lanes. Then I'll prep the tree once I'm up the tree. Because when I'm prepping the tree, my bow and my backpack is still on the ground. Okay. I'm going up the tree with my saddle on, with my safety lines and belt on, with my steps going up the tree. Once I get up to the top where I want to be, then I will look at the little shooting lanes that I've cleared and say, okay, now I need to, I need to get rid of that branch or I need to get rid of that branch or that over there. Because if you, a lot of times people make a big mistake is they, they'll prep the tree and then they'll clear, come back down and clear some shooting lanes and then they get back up in the tree and they forget stuff. So if you prep the shooting lanes while you're looking at the location in the tree you plan on being at, you prep the shooting lanes then you get up in the tree, you've got the tree prepped. Now you got to go down to get your bow anyway. You look at your lanes again before you go back down, and you, you notice there's always something you missed, right. always. And you go clean that up and then go get in the tree. Um, but I also am looking at the time of the year I'm hunting it. So okay. if I'm, I'm hunting early season where the foliage is on the tree, you know, I, will, I typically won't have to get up as high because i got good background cover. But if I'm going in during the rut phases and all the foliage is down, um, as I'm walking around looking at trees, I'm looking at the tree that's going to give me the best cover. You know, I see a lot of YouTube videos of guys in saddles, and they're hunting in these 14-inch diameter trees. Those just don't offer adequate cover if, you know, if you're going to hunt 20, 25 feet mm-hmm. to me. In Michigan, you'd get picked. you just get picked. Um, so I'm looking at trees that may have a crotch, you know, up there 25, 28 feet, you know, something where I can get up out of their peripheral vision because I'm, I'm basically going to be skyline, you know, right. from a deer's perspective when they're looking, you know, in trees, um, you know, you're, you've basically got a sky background. You don't have any leaves in the trees or any trees behind you with some background cover to break your body silhouette up. So you got to get up high enough to be out of their peripheral vision and where you can get away with some movements because uh, a lot of guys that I see, they get in trees and they get in so low 18, 20 feet and, and then deer come in and they can't make a move. You can't move because once deer, deer pick that movements up when they're low, the lower you are, the easier it is for deer to pick up movements Yeah, because you're in their peripheral vision. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean that, that background cover, especially, you know, even this time of year when you still have some, leaves on the trees and you know depending on what you were like yesterday when i was doing that freelance i was in a i was in a on the edge of a cedar thicket and so everything's pretty low and everything's just like you know how cedars are just like all stemmy and you know just crap everywhere so i really was only able to get up if i wanted any shooting opportunity this is public of course right so it's you know any shooting opportunity i had to stay within kind of below the the line of all the branches and all the limbs you know so i was only up maybe 12 feet but I had so much background cover and breakup, I chose the right tree that I had 
a doe walk in and stand at five yards and she was looking straight at me and kept on going about her business. You know what I mean? Like I just had so much breakup behind me that I just looked like a mess of crap among all the rest of the mess of crap that's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have it. Yeah. Like I, like what I was talking about early season when you got a lot of foliage around you in the tree and behind you. Yeah. You can, you can definitely set up lower. I've shot deer at 12 feet off. I think I, I think the lowest I've ever sat was ten feet, and I was actually in a cedar tree. Right, but that was obviously not on public land because I had to rape part of the tree to sit in it. There was right. there was one runway. I knew this buck was coming out on this very runway. It was right next to a cattail marsh, and I just cleaned out the cedar tree, probably ten feet up to my feet, just enough so I could get that one shot to that runway. And on the very first evening hunt, I killed killed that that buck. But I had to cut part of the cedar. I had to probably yeah. a quarter. Of where I was at, I had to cut. Yeah. Yeah. So what type with that being said, you know, you're in that cedar tree, what type of trees do you prefer? Like if you're going in all things being equal, right? Cause I know you're looking to set up a shot opportunity at destination sites. So let's just say you have your pick a tree, you know, any one of them are going to give you the shot to that destination site. What trees do you prefer to get into typically? Oaks, hands Oaks. down, no competition. Maples have way too many branches. Mm-hmm. Um, Oaks are hardwood. So I'm, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about if I step on a branch or something, it breaking. Uh, oaks typically hold some leaves. Oaks typically, when they, they're not just straight trunk for, you know, 40 feet until they hit a branch, typically oaks go up there and, you know, there's going to be some crotches. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just I just love hunting out of oaks. That's nice. by far my favorite. Beach, beach also have a lot of branches. Beech and maple just are very branchy trees. Right. So once you get up there, especially on it, freelance hunt um it's hard to find a shot through the branches especially in low light you know you may be up there and you know it's two hours before dark and yeah you can see i got a little shooting hole right there or shooting hole right there yeah well when it gets 15 minutes before dark and everything's dusky and you can't see those little branches anymore yeah you know you're 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 pretty much screwed whereas oak don't have that kind of they they're just not that branchy right and usually big and they're tall and they're hard and you don't have to worry about if you get up in a smaller diameter tree, you don't have to worry about it swaying as much as a soft tree, you know, when you make a move. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the climbing aspect too. It's like, I I hate nothing more than whenever I'm climbing, you know, whether it's, especially in the morning, whenever I'm, I'm, I'm in the dark, you know, uh, in in an area and I'm climbing and I'm having to maneuver around a bunch of branches where it's like, I'm unclipping my lineman's belt and putting my tether on. So I'm always strapped in and I'm going back and forth. It's just a bunch of extra, extra work to be done. And, uh, it's just kind of a pain in the ass to be honest. So I agree with you. Now, now on private, I will say on private land, my preference would be a pine tree because I, I'm always going to have, always going to have cover. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and but, good, and, and good scent yes. cover too. In addition to your scent lock suit, just because everything will smell piney. I never worry about scent. I know. <laughs> <laughs> scent is not The only time I worry about scent is when I'm setting up at a primary scrape area. I'll, I, if there's an adequate tree on the down on the predominantly downwind side of the scrapes, which winds usually add the northwest in the fall and mm-hmm. the turn the right, you know, I'll I'll set up a tree on the south southeast side mm-hmm. if there's an adequate tree because big big bucks typically have a have a tendency, especially if they're checking a scrape during midday. Mm-hmm. of checking it from downwind and not going into the scrape. So if I set up a location 20 yards off the scrapes on the southeast side and then have a shooting lane, you know, 20 yards 
southeast of my tree. Um, you know, if a deer circles around anything 40 yards from the scrapes, I've got a shot. Right. Whereas if I set up on the northwest side of the scrapes and he comes 40 yards downwind of the scrapes, I don't have a shot. Right. And so I, I was going to ask this question, but I think you've already kind of answered it. It sounds like you prefer to have, well, actually, I will ask it because I know you like to clear shooting lanes, but we talked about back cover. So do you prefer, you know, if you had to pick one or the other, do you prefer lots of cover or do you prefer to have a more than adequate shooting lanes? Well, I definitely want to have a shooting lane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, if, if I'm if I have a tree that's inadequate, I just go higher. That's my that's right. my mantra. If uh, if if the foliage is down and I need to get up there thirty feet to get out of their peripheral vision because I don't have any background cover, you know, the higher you go, the less apt the deer is to see you in a tree. That's all. That's right. That's all there is to it. Right. So, but if you don't have a good, I, I can't believe how many times. I walk because when I get permission on just knock on doors, mm -hmm. there's always other people there. Right. There's always a lot of other hunters there, and it blows my mind. I'll walk, and this is places where they can shoot clear shooting lanes. Right. And I'll walk, and I'll see a tree stand or something, and I mean, I'll walk around that tree and to the and on the runways. And there's no way they could get a shot. There's just brush everywhere. Right. It's like, what's the sense of being in a tree if you don't have a shot when a deer goes by? It's right. ridiculous. So. Yeah, shooting lanes is, is is critical, and obviously there are occasions in trees where you just have to sit like a rock. You know, you just can't even move your head around that much because there isn't a lot of cover in the tree. You know, mm -hmm. but uh, typically, yeah, typically I just go up the tree higher, and uh, but I always look for a tree on a DIY hunt where I've got some openings for shots. Right, because if you don't have a, if you don't have a shot, it's irrelevant of deer even being there. Right. It's like you put in all that work and then you, you know, you, the opportunities are few and far between, right, uh, of getting that, yeah, that shot opportunity. And so you do as much as you can to maximize it. Yeah. So. Uh, for instance, my, the biggest buck I, I probably freelanced, I guess on freelance hunts, I've probably taken 10 Pope and Young bucks mm -hmm. freelance hunting. And my biggest one was 180 incher. And I was sitting in it, and this was in Iowa, and this was on not on public land. It was on knock on doors for free permission property, and uh, I was hunting this spot in the morning, and I kept seeing movement back closer to the river, back probably I don't know two hundred yards to my south. Um, so I got down. I, I was planning on an all day sit, and I got down at like nine o'clock because I wasn't seeing much, mm -hmm. and uh, I just I had a decoy out where I was hunting, I put the decoy in the bag and just left it there. And I just slowly freelanced back in through the timber. And uh, I found a primary scrape area from hell. I mean, there was four scrapes and they were huge. And one of them was pungent. It had just been urinated in. And, and uh, I set up a location. I shot that buck that evening. Nice. And, uh, but that was at a scrape. That was at a primary scrape area. So if you set up at a primary scrape area, you're always going to have an opening to shoot to. Yep. And he was actually at the scrape, working the scrape when I shot him at 12 yards. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a good stopping point for this uh, part number one, because we're going to dive into part number two, which is actually hunting uh, active scrape areas. So is there anything else to add with the, the idea of extra exit and entry routes and, and uh, choosing locations that we need to add on to? Or are we good to go? I, I would I would just tell everybody, just anytime you pick a location, 
Now, these are preset locations. Obviously, we've discussed the, the problems with freelance hunting. It's hard to pick entry routes because you're looking for something. So, right. But on any preset location, just always think where is the least possibility of me spooking deer to enter this location and where is the least possible amount of deer going to be to exit this location. Right. And a lot of hunters, you know, I, I never wear a headlamp. I always use a little AAA single cell flashlight. All I want to see is the ground and my tacks. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of hunters, when they get done hunting on an evening hunt or when they're going in on a morning hunt, they got these headlamps on. Mm-hmm. And even the guys at the uh, Public Land Challenge, I was kind of shocked, had almost everybody wore headlamps. Mm-hmm. I don't think Dan did. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, it just blows my mind because when you're walking in, you know, you're turning your head and that light's going everywhere. And during the rut phases, when the foliage is down, if people think deer can't see that, they're crazy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they get done with a hunt, they figure, well, I'm finished hunting, so my exit is irrelevant. Well, if you plan on hunting in that area again, no, your exit is not irrelevant. Right. Your exit is very important, especially if you're going to hunt that same tree again. Yep. Because if you, if you spook deer with your exits, uh, they have the older bucks have memories. Yeah. You know, to kill does and subordinate bucks, that's a totally different animal than, you know, a three and a half year old buck and older. Right. When you're after those bigger mature bucks, you have to think differently and every detail matters. Everything. Yeah. Agreed. And that, that was one of the things that I've, I've learned over time as well is where, you know, now I will use, I have a headlamp. It's, and if I need to track uh, blood at night, of course I have the, well, that's, right. But I understand. when I walk in and out, I, you know, I, I'm basically using my red light because I don't want, I just, yep. to your point, I basically just want to be able to see the ground and enough to not knock my eyes out walking through <laughs> brush essentially. But last night on that freelance hunt that I did, I didn't know exactly how I was going to get out. I knew I didn't want to get out the same way I came in because uh, I was I was kind of scouting my way through to where I was going to hunt. And so I was in some areas that typically you probably wouldn't want, wouldn't want to be in if you were trying to access it. But I was trying to find hot sign. And so I was like, I need to just figure out where the deer are at in this piece. And um, so on my way out, it was overcast and I knew it was going to get dark a little earlier than it typically, typically does. So with just a little bit of daylight left, I ended up getting down because I knew if I could get out with a little bit of daylight, and I'm talking like, you know, an extra 15 minutes of daylight, getting down 15 minutes early, that I'll be able to see enough with no light on that I can actually figure out my best way to get in and out of this piece you know, for future hunts. Yeah. So, you know, I gave up 15 minutes of, of gray light hunting to map out my, my access route for, for in and out of this piece that's going to be as low impact as possible. So I, I understand that, but there's, there's been several times in the years that I've done this, that, uh, you know, I get out of the tree again, half hour after dark. That's my typical thing is half hour after dark, I get out of the tree. I want all the deer to pass by me and mm-hmm. be gone. So I'm not screwing anything up with my exit. And I mean, on a FI or on a DIY hunt, when you exit and you have no clue where you're going, but you don't want to exit the way you entered because you know, you're going to spook deer that direction. Mm-hmm. I've ran into some real issues <laughs> when in the dark, you know, run into the swamps or yeah. it fogs that are, you know, it's just muck and you fall down to your waist. Well, it's that just, was what happened. Yeah. That's what happened on my entrance. It's like, I, I was at the edge of this swamp cause I wanted to check it and like, I got into it and then I was into the mud then I was into cattails trying to bush whack my way through. And I was just like, 
once I got through all of it and I'm climbing through briar patches and once I got through it, I was like, there's no way in hell I'm coming back through this. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I got to find like for a, a morning entry. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I got to find a better way, you know? So I found a, I found a better oh. way. In. So the other step is too, is I would have some really good access if I can get some permission just to access some people's ground. Cause once I get up to the, I guess it would be the South. So if it's the South, it'd be the West side of this property. It's all lined with homes. And so better access mm. would be getting through. And, and so I knew my exit route was getting up by those, the property lines of those homes. Cause I knew it would be a, a little cleaner and there was just a little bit of elevation. And so that's basically where I went and walked it down to where I was, you know, ultimately going to get out to where my truck was at. And so the one move is I've already actually talked to one cause there's actually a, uh, a dog kennel that borders it. And so I actually stopped in like a week ago and, you know, asked to talk to the owner to see if I could get access just to walk through their parking lot. Cause I can actually get basically into the middle of like all the good stuff I want to be in by walking through their parking lot down over like the, basically the, the bank behind their, their property. So if I can get that, I'll be aces. Like I'll have, it'll be super clean in and out no matter what part I want to hunt on that property. I just got a fingers crossed. Flint, I get access. Flint, that's an excellent point. I'm glad you said that because don't be shy to ask people that live in the area if you could park your vehicle and use their property as an access. You know, a lot of times they're going to say no, but once in a while they may say yes, and it makes all the difference in the world. Yep. And and again, once they, when I was talking about headlamps, uh, I don't know how many times I've been. I'm in my tree during the rough phases on morning hunts anyway. I'm in my tree set up and quiet an hour and a half before daylight. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spook thing with my entry because mature bucks have a tendency to move back into the bedding areas a half hour to 45 minutes before daylight in Michigan anyway, right. uh, not Kansas or other states I've hunted. Um, so one thing I've noticed on public lands is I'll be in my tree an hour and a half before daylight. And, you know, during rough phases when the foliage is down, I'll see these, you know, once in a while I'll see these headlamps come in and then it's just funny because I'll, they're spooking deer and they're, I, I've had, Many times I've had deer run by me, you know, a half hour before daylight when they're coming in mm-hmm. and uh, just run by me and they're spooking from this guy and the headlights, the headlamps is just going, it's shining all over the place. And those beams on, you know, everybody, when they buy a headlamp, they want one with the most uh, lumens, you know, <laughs> exactly. They're not worried about having it low light. They want it as bright as they can so they can see. And boy, it's always best just to have enough light to see the ground. And if you're using tacks or some kind of markers to see your next marker. Yeah. And I like the point that you made about, you know, asking for access. Cause I even, I just got access through someone's property for this one, this one piece that I hunt and um, cause they border it. And I basically park, like half a mile away from them. Cause I told him, I was like, look, I was like, I don't even want to park in your driveway. I was like, it's fine. I was like, I have a spot that I parked down the road. I was like, I'm good out there. I was like, I just want to literally be able to walk the edge of your yard. Like the furthest, the point furthest from your house. I want to be able just to walk the edge of the yard, like to get in behind your house. Cause like, cause your, your property line borders this, uh, this piece of property that I have access to. I was like, and I'll be coming in and out right along the edge of your property. You know, I was like, I just want to let you, you know, I was like, I'll give you a heads up when I come by. I was like, that way, if I'm coming out in an evening, you won't be freaked out by, you know, someone walking out at night. I'll let you know when I'll be in here. They're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. No worries. You know, so, you know, even if they, you know, I always start by saying I'm I'm parking a half mile away from you. I'm going to walk up and if can I use the edge of your yard? And then they're usually like, yeah. And then a lot of times they'll even say, well, why don't you just park over here? 
you know, so I, sure. I usually even leave that out and then I'll let them kind of add that in if it's something they're willing to do. But I'm willing, cause look, that extra half hour or that extra half mile walk is nothing if I don't have to walk that in the timber and I'm able to walk it along a road, you know what I mean? Oh, so dude, absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah. I've got one spot where I, I come across an open field and they've never had it in standing corn. It's always been a low crop field. I'll come across it in, and I carry my waders and then I cross a river um, and then I've got a tree like 20 yards off the river. Mm-hmm. So the deer come out of the timber and they'll cross that river going out into the crops in the evening. So this, again, it's an evening location. Yep. But my exit, my exit, because I'm not going to cross the river and go back out and spook deer that are out in that field after dark, I probably only walk eh, a quarter mile, mm-hmm. three-eighths of a mile to go to this location through the field and across the river. My exit is probably a mile and a half. Right. I have to go back around through the perimeter of the timber, walk this lane, and then walk it back out to the road, and then i got to walk down a road about a quarter mile and then back down another road about a half a mile to my vehicle. Yep. Just so I'm spooking deer with my entry, and, and or my exit. Exits and entries are pretty critical. And it's just the opposite for a morning, obviously. You know, if you're entering a morning spot, you want to come in through the timber, mm-hmm. um, through the timber, if there's deer out in crop fields, uh, and then enter your spot through the timber and then exit through the crop field. And again, you don't walk the edge of the crop field when you're exiting, you walk out into, into the weed field or crops or opening or whatever, and then out to the middle and then leave from there. So, cause there's no deer out there in the morning after you're hunting. So you're not spooking anything with your exit. Yep. So I think we had some pretty good tips for uh, entry and exit. I think if uh, if you're cool with it, we will move on to part number two, hunting interactive scrapes. All right, folks, that's a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative if you do those two things for us. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.